well, are we almost done here? Because I don't want to miss the Simpsons. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilesembrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or for folks who want to develop their fonts, their letter forms for the screen print and relief printed works. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the first edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribers and enthusiasts across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Bill Lagatuda master printer and workshop manager at the Tamron Institute of Lithography from 1988 to 2015. We talk about his early days as a printer traveling around the country from job to job and rethinking his career path a bit during that time. Landing at Tamron and working with incredible artists over the years and being featured in the Albuquerque Museum of Art's amazing exhibition, Printer's Proof, which features additions from some of the great master printers of our time. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to wander the desert a bit with Bill Lagatuda. Hi, Bill. How's it going? I'm good. How are you, Miranda? I'm really good. Thanks for joining me for a chat. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. And I feel like this is kind of special in that we've actually gotten to meet in person and talk in person first. A lot of my guests I just kind of know by reputation or by interest in their work, but we actually Uh live in the same state, which is (laughs) fun for the podcast. And I'm excited to talk a bit about you and your story and your time making prints. So thanks. All right. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Awesome. Well, before I get into all my questions, would you just let people know a little bit about yourself? I always call it the who you are, where you are, what you do kind of questions. Okay. Well, I, I started learning lithography when I was in graduate school. I went to the University of Utah, and I had this great professor, Bob Kleinschmidt, who taught me lithography. And I don't know, if it, I did etching and woodcuts and silk screens and all that, but for some reason, lithography, I don't know, there was something about it that, I don't know, it just stuck with me. And, and so I finished graduate school, make a long story short, finished graduate school, couldn't find a teaching job, figuring, well, how else can I stay in the arts if I'm not teaching? So I wound up applying to Tamarind. I was banging nails in Flagstaff at the time. My wife was going to school at NAU in Flagstaff, and I was a carpenter. And so we were pretty close to Albuquerque so we just we came over one time my wife said well go over there and, and make an appointment and go talk to him so I did and 
I was really impressed with what, they, what I saw. They were actually, I never forget this, they were proofing a Kenny Price print, and it was like all these blends and stuff, but it was a beautiful print. And I was like, wow, look at all this stuff, you mm-hmm. know? So anyway, so I, I applied, I, I got in, stayed there, well, two years, two years, I got accepted the second year, and then I got a job after that in Minneapolis. I worked in Minneapolis at Vermilion Editions. I, after that, I helped set up a print shop for a gentleman in Denver called, his name was Frank Howell. I worked for him for about three years. That was a great experience because he let me, I set up a shop from scratch, so I could, it was just me as the printer, so I, I built tables from my height and everything I, everything I did. Yeah, make it custom. That's was, great. Yeah, it was a custom shop. It was great. And it was it was a good experience for me, ordering all this stuff and, and just setting the whole thing up. And then I worked for him for about three years, and then I wound up working with um, Joe Segura. We went to Tamron together, and he had a shop well, at the time it was called SETI Impressions, SETI Publishing, and uh, that was in Tempe. And I went down there, worked with Joe for about a year, and then I kind of took a hiatus. I was like, well, do I really want to be a printer the rest of my life? And I was questioning what I really want to do with myself. And so we, me and my wife, we took a break and, and we wound up, we went to Europe and took our bikes and biked around Europe for three months just by ourselves. Oh, wonderful. And we camped out everywhere pretty much. And uh, we did that. That was great. We came back and I was like, okay, what do I want to do? When I was in Tempe, I was thinking about going to culinary school. I always liked cooking. And I went and talked to this chef one day at some fancy restaurant in Scottsdale. And I walked in. At the time, I was running. He looked at me and he goes, are you a runner? I said, yeah. He said, well, you become a chef. You're not going to have any time to do that. Mm. I said, well, what's your day like? Tell me what. Well, I get up at five. I go to the market. I pick out the food, figure out the menu. It was more of like a managerial position telling people what to do and what to prepare and making up the menu and he said i work lunch sometimes i get a break between lunch and dinner i go home take a little nap come back for dinner stay at the restaurant until uh, 12 one o'clock in the morning get up and do it all over again and i thought oh god i don't want to be a i don't want to manage people that's not <laughs> what i want to do. I, I want to cook you know i want to you know chop up stuff so i thought oh, no this isn't what i want to do so I wound up, when we came back from Europe, I called up some friends, and, and there was this lady I worked with, with Joe. Her name was Jill Lerner, and she works at Gemini now. But she worked at Graphic Studio for a while in, in Florida, and then, and then she got a job at Gemini. She's at Gemini now. Anyway, make a long story short, I called her up one day. And, hey, Jill, do you know of any printing jobs? And she said, well, yeah, there's this guy, Mike Hart, in Dallas, Texas. He's looking for a photographer. I called him up. He said, yeah, come on down, and, and we'll talk, you know. So I went. It was a kind of a full shop. They they did you know woodcuts, etching, silkscreen, and and but they were looking for a lithography. And uh, it was a great shop. It was right in Deep Ellum downtown that was just being developed. A lot of just an up and coming area of Dallas. And so they were doing some really nice stuff. Mainly working with Texas artists, which there's a lot of good ones down there. And so I wound up working there for three years. And then one day I was talking with Joe Segura again on the phone. And he said, Hey, Billy. They're looking for a shop manager at Cameron, and I went, huh, yeah, I always liked Albuquerque. I was kind of a laid back. I, I was there in 77 or 79, I said. And I had, I'd been gone for 10 years working at other shops, and I wouldn't mind going back to Albuquerque. You know, it's kind of a nice laid back, like a big town. It wasn't much of a city. And so I applied for the job, and I don't know, for some reason I got it. And, <laughs> and, uh, 
I wound up I wound up being there for twenty seven years until I retired. Yeah. So if we could go like back just a little bit, I'm always curious for people where they grew up and and what role art played in their life and how they kind of ended up getting started in the art world just in general. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you want to go way back to high school, I had this really great art teacher. His name was Mr. Antonelli, and he always had his glasses down over his nose. He was always looking over his glasses. He had this big bushy mustache, and he was always disheveled as tie. You know, back then, teachers wore jackets back then. His tie was all disheveled, and he was just kind of a, I don't know, typical kind of an art teacher, I guess, and kind of scattered a little bit. But he was a great guy, and I always remember he had him and his wife, they showed dog. I <laughs> dog. Yeah. So, and one day we were talking, and I said, what are, you, what are you doing this weekend? He said, oh, it was a big show. I grew up in New Jersey, so somewhere in New York. He said, I can't remember what kind of dogs he had. I think they were small dogs, but I'm not sure what breed they were. And he said, uh, yeah, he said, I got to get them ready this weekend. He, I got to give them a shampoo and a cream rinse. And I went, cream rinse? I said, you can give your dogs cream rinses, you know? <laughs> And uh, it always stuck in my mind. I was like, wow. Anyway, he, he was like a really nice guy. And I, and I enjoyed I enjoyed art. We uh, didn't take it too serious. It was just one of the classes we took. But I, I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. And, and, and then when I went to college, I kind of had this other life, too. I, was, I played tennis in high school, and I wound up going to college on a partial tennis scholarship. So that was my deal. I went to this strange school in North Carolina called Wingate College, uh, just about an hour, hour and a half outside of Charlotte. But from coming to New Jersey, it's like landing on the beach. Huh. It was, it was just like, oh my God, look at all this open space. I was used to like one town after another. There's no space in between. But North Carolina was just like all this open space, and I was like, God, this is so nice. And uh, but it was also super conservative. It was, it was actually a Baptist school. We had to go to, like, there was mass on campus every Wednesday we had to go to, and we had to keep our hair cut short. Oh, but, wow. But it was, like I said, I was just there for to play tennis. I didn't really have any thought about what to major in. All. I remember when, when we had to somehow declare, what do you want to major in? And I went, well, what's kind of the easiest? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, probably dissertation. I said, well, that's my major, you know? Uh-huh. And, I said, okay, I'll just be a business administrator. So anyway, I wound up going to your school, and we had a, a, a coach who, it was his like first job, too, I think, coaching. So he wasn't much older than we were, and but he was a great guy. In fact, I still keep in contact with him. His last job, he wound up coaching at Rice in uh-huh. Houston for the, like, I don't know, seven years. And he was at South Carolina, I think, for a long time. And anyway, he was just, he was a great coach, and and. We all got along, and we had a great team. We had all these international players on the team, and it was like before all that national sports people were. It was like he was like way ahead of his time. Us, he's in '69, and so we did really well. We won a lot of. You know, we always won our division and stuff, and we wound up. We just did really well. It was great experience. So it was like it was like so I did that. Did the business thing for two years, but then I started taking some art classes too. And I thought, wow, this art class is much more fun than business administration, you know, going to accounting classes, economics classes. But actually, in a weird way, I kind of like that too. So, to make a long story short, I wound up went going to a four year school after that. I got another scholarship when I transferred, and 
I wound up staying an extra year and getting a double major. I, I majored in business administration and art. And I had a really great transfer to the school called Appalachian State University. It was in Boone, North Carolina, up in the Blue League Mountains. And there was a couple professors there that uh, were really, really good teachers. One was, his name was Bill Dunlap. And then another one, his name was uh, Dean Alot, who actually really good friends with Jack Lemon. They mm. wound up. They taught together in Nova Scotia. And uh, at one point in, in my travels, I, I was in Chicago for, call that, where you go looking for job, college. Like a job fair? Yeah, kind of like a job fair for getting jobs at universities. Anyway, it was in Chicago, and uh, Landfall was in Chicago at the time. It was like 75, I think. And I went by Landfall. And, uh, they weren't letting any people in the shop because of this conference. They didn't want to have a whole bunch of people. <laughs> and, but all uh, they were just about ready to, his, Jack's wife at the time, her name was Ethel, she was just about ready to close the door on me. And I said, well, I'm really good, I'm good friends with Dean Adelot, he's, he's my teacher. And as soon as she heard his name, she opened the door back up and said, well, come on in. And she was nice and showed me around. Jack wasn't there at the time, it was on a Saturday. And, uh, but that, that's my first connection with Jack, so mm. this, this good friend, Dean Adelot. Yeah. But, so like I said, after that, I went to graduate school, and then that's where I learned how to, you know, before I started learning lithography. Mm, yeah. So that's pretty much it. That's my life in a nutshell. <laughs> All right. Interview over. No. <laughs> no. I, I'm really taken by in your story. It sounds like there were kind of moments where you weren't entirely sure if printmaking was what you wanted to do. And and right. you took this sojourn through Europe on bikes, and you were looking at maybe being a chef. And I think I'm kind of struck by that because it rings very true to me to kind of sometimes my experience and the experience of other people I, I know, because it is something of a precarious life, or it can be. I mean, in your list, you, you were like Dallas, Tempe, Minneapolis all these places and you move a lot but I I guess it's just kind of nice to hear because I I would reckon that sometimes people think oh printer at Tamarind for for 25 years he must have always known this was his thing and just straight short but it really sounds like it was kind of more of a, a winding road and more of kind of going where the opportunities were and just sort of waiting until you could land somewhere really yeah and and there was say Pretty much every place I work, and it's not a bad thing, but it's just the way things are, is that a lot of times I couldn't, I didn't get paid. I'd be like, mm. oh, I can't, can't pay you this week. Money's tight. We're waiting. We're trying to get paid by the publisher or whatever, whatever the situation was, you know. And I mean, you, we, I always got paid, but it was always like, eh, I got to wait a week or two or whatever. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Okay. You know, I understand. It's not your fault. Mm. Somebody has to... The cash flow was, wasn't there. And, and where I worked in, in Minneapolis at Vermilion Editions, oh my God, it was like, it was the best job to have at when I left Tamron because they were really doing a lot of interesting work. We were doing multiple stuff with Red Grooms. We did some, some great etchings with Sam Gilliam. There was just a lot of artists that, this, this guy that I worked for, his name was Steve Anderson. And, uh, he had an interesting story when he was when he was young. He he just had gotten out of the navy and he was taking the GI Bill to go back to school and he didn't know anything about art. That was the furthest thing from his mind. And 
one day he signed up for this lithography class, but it was a really topography class. He hmm. thought it was a map maker, <laughs> but, it, but it was lithography. And so he walks in, he's like, what is this? What are these stones? What, what, what are we, this isn't what I thought it was, but it just so happened that the guy who taught it, his name was Zig Purdy, who printed at ULAE when ULAE first started in the 60s. And he would go to Long Island in the summertime when he wasn't teaching to work with all these great artists, Rauschenberg and Johns and all these people that, to Tanya Grossman out there in Long Island. And I guess Steve was like a natural at, at what at lithography and so he Zig said well Steve you want to come with me this summer and help me out so there he is printing he's out in Long Island printing John's prints and stuff and oh my god I mean he, he, from there he he was kind of he was good at what he did and, and he wound up working at this other shop called it was called Styria Editions in New York mm-hmm. and they did a lot of silk screens. In fact, they did a lot of the Andy Warhol Mao, Chairman Mao prints. Yeah. And one time when I, when I was at Vermilion, it was on a weekend. We were there working, and Steve was trying to raise some money. He he wasn't the best business person, so he was always uh, trying to raise money. And so he was thinking about selling some of his printers' crews. So one day I was in there, and he had he showed me like chairman mal print he showed me this jasper johns print that was just i mean a knockout that he did at um ulae and uh, we had some really valuable stuff blue chip stuff and uh he said hey you want to buy this jasper johns <laughs> and i went well how much you asking <laughs> this is in 1979 he goes i'm asking ten thousand dollars well it's like to me it was like a you got me kidding. But that print eventually wound up selling for like $100,000. Oh my gosh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like but, that's those moments that I feel like people experience where they do have these chances to get these incredible works or i even worked for someone once who who ran a gallery who had the option of someone trading prints for microsoft stock in the 90s and he turned them down and i feel like we all kind of have like a a print that got away story yeah (laughs) well yeah i got another story that about the print that got away but i ain't gonna i'm not talking about it oh no too painful yeah Okay. Okay. That'll be like it. the next time we have you on, you can you can emotionally prepare for it. Yeah. I I'm wondering listening to you, you know, kind of tell the stories about how a lot of the shops like maybe they couldn't pay you on time or were looking to raise money, but you also had this background as you said in business administration as as your other major. Did that ever come in handy when you were working with these shops or were you ever able to kind of help them out a bit? <laughs> No, not really. No, it's like, I think when you own a print shop, I think it's more about smoothing with people that of means and, mm. and trying to get people to, to buy subscription sets or whatever to, to raise money for the, for, the, for the print shop, for the company or whatever. Because it's always about never, never having enough cash. It's just, it was just hand to mouth. It's always like, okay, we're we're okay this month. It was never like there was never like a surplus of of, of cash. And to be honest, I really don't know. Mm. To me, all that all that business stuff is just to me, it's theory. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I've I've never really put it to practice. Yeah. But like I said, I I still enjoyed it. I mean, I still enjoyed enjoyed 
the accounting class for some weird reason. I love doing math <laughs> and e- economy classes. I love, there was this mac- microeconomy class that I took from this Indian professor that for some reason it was just fascinating how they, how they you know, make these assumptions out of people's behavior, basically, you know, how, how, they, how people spend money or don't spend money or, I don't know, it's just another world. Yeah. Like everything else is just another world. And, and sometimes, I, you know, the art world is just, it's probably the weirdest of them all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from what I've seen of it, I could agree. But are there any particular anecdotes that are coming to mind that make you say that? No, just what I've seen over the last yeah. 50 years, or not 50 years, but 35 years working and making art for people and and seeing how you know, the whole art world run art fairs and that stuff. It's just, I mean, it was fun. It was all fun. I, I, if it wasn't for my, if it wasn't for my body breaking down, I, I, I mean, I still do a little printing. You know, I have a little press in my garage, but I certainly don't want to do anything big and, and you know, monstrous or anything. I just want to basically go back to the basics, do small prints, trying to convince some artists to do some nice drawing on stones, printing some simple mm-hmm. prints. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's where I'm at now. And you could say, well, well, really? No one wants to do that anymore. Well, maybe so. That's okay. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to make a living at it anymore. Luckily, working for Cameron, which is part of the university, I wound up with, 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 uh, a pension from mm-hmm. you from the state, which is which I never really thought about. They take money out of your paycheck, and you never see it. So if you never see it, you, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, you so. don't miss it. Yeah, you yeah. Don't miss it. Okay, you know. And then, but then when it came time to retire, I was like, I had to take these couple classes about retirement, and I'm like, really? You gonna give me this money every <laughs> month for not working? All right, okay, is that how it works? Yeah. I, now, the more I think about it, it's just like, I've just been so lucky. It's like, I've never really, I've just kind of stumbled across things. Things just kind of happen. You talk to, printers are it's a small group of people and, and you kind of know people and you meet people and you talk to somebody on the phone. And it's like, oh, oh, there's a job where? Oh, I'll give them a call. When, when I was a student at and this artist was coming to Tamman to do some work and he had passed through Minneapolis and he was the one that, gave me a flyer about Vermilion, you know, and, and I just kept it. And when I got ready to finish Tamron, there was like, I heard of a job opening in Anchorage, Alaska. They wanted somebody up there. that They called Tamron looking to see if anybody wanted that, that job. And so I was like, well, I'd love to see Alaska. But it was, it was just, we figured out it was so expensive just to move there, yeah. to get our stuff up there. Be like, God, I can't even afford to move there. So I wound up calling up Vermillion instead, you know, from this guy's flyer that he gave me at just out of circumstance. Here's this cool shop I saw in Minneapolis when I was coming through to drive into New Mexico and stuff like that. Just life happens when you're just, I don't know, that just happens. Yeah, I think there's an incredible significance, and particularly in the art world, although I reckon in other businesses as well, but. Mm-hmm. All the incredible opportunities I've gotten, like going to work in Thailand for a year and all of that. I mean, that just came from just kind of showing up on time and being nice to people. And then someone's like, hey, do you want to go work in Bangkok for a year? And I'm like, yes, I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm on that. 
Yeah, totally. And yeah. and it's something I've been thinking about more as I'm kind of entering like a, a middle phase of my of my art career, I guess, or maybe early middle. I've been in the arts for about 12 years now. Is that the funny way that like friendship and professional really intersect in the art world and people that I consider really good friends also might end up like helping fund a podcast I want to start or something. And it's really interesting how that intersection feels so, uh, so deep and, and maybe because there's so much kind of scrappy entrepreneurialness that's necessary in the art world that people do sort of band together and help each other when we can. And, and I do it to people when I can help them. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about your your path from being a, a grad student and then um, going to Tamarind. So you must have been making your own work in grad school and then sort of shifted yeah. and doing the, the master printer gig. And then did you continue to make your own work or did your creative outlet kind of just shift to being the collaborator? Yeah, pretty much did. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, always done, I've always done watercolor. Even when I was graduate school, my emphasis was prints and drawing. So it wasn't just all prints. It was it was a lot of drawing also. And so I just did drawings, kind of mixed media drawings. And somehow, it, oh, I know who, who kind of influenced me was one time William Wiley, who's a they passed away last year. Mm-hmm. He, he came to uh, University of Utah as a visiting artist. And uh, I saw a lot of his watercolors. One day he came in my, into my studio and said, hey, I'll show you my, my sketchbook. Show me yours kind of thing. And I went, well, let me see yours first. <laughs> <laughs> His, his watercolors were just spectacular, you know, and, and so I think, and I haven't thought about it in years, but I think Wiley kind of influenced me about watercolors, and, and then one time I was in, I think I was in high school, I went over to the Met one Sunday, and I was just wandering around, it was just a rainy Sunday, and, and I could hop on a bus in New Jersey and be in, at the Port Authority in like 20 minutes, and so... It was the perfect thing to do on a rainy Sunday, just go to New York and go to a museum and just get lost, you know. And there was nothing particular I wanted to see, and I walked by this little room. I'll never forget this. And it was just this little room. Maybe only had 20, 25 watercolors in it, but they were John Singer Sargent watercolors. Oh, wow. Oh, God. They just floored me. I was just like, oh, my God, these are so beautiful. The way he used the paper and the for light and stuff. They were just incredible. He was so facile, so good at watercolors. And so between him and that, one time I saw a Winslow Homer show of watercolors that were just killer also. And uh, I don't know, I just always, so I just kind of, I mean, I just kind of taught myself how to do watercolors. And so I I still do them, you know? And and so I kind of, that's how I kind of, I made the split. There there was no reason for me to do, why does I need multiples of something? I wasn't selling anything. I was just like, Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the collaboration part. I I enjoyed figuring out stuff and and I liked working with my hands. And it was all, it was all all about that rather than, I didn't really have a whole lot to say in printmaking. But uh, anyway, so that's how kind of split my, yeah. And how do you sort of think about the relationship between the artist and the printer? Like during your time at Tamarind, there's like, it's collaborative printing, it's master printing, there's different verbiage around it, obviously. But when you would go into it, what was kind of the attitude or kind of the framework that you 
considered that relationship to be in terms of the collaboration and producing the edition? Well, well, it was kind of two ways, like Tamron work. I mean, sometimes you would just work when you were a student. You'd work with the artist kind of one-on-one. We just kind of rotated. Like when I was there, there was actually three senior printers and the, and the shop manager. Mm-hmm. It was Steve Steve Britko at the time. Steve Britko was the shop manager. And so he would just, let's say Roy DeForest came to work. And so we would, let's say Steve would start with him with one print and then he'd get start printing proof and then the next printer would work with him. So it's just kind of rotated around. But when when I became the, the shop manager, I kinda I kinda liked it when we kinda worked as a team. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, I'll, maybe I'll start with the artist, but, but kinda work let's work together as a team. Like like I'll help you out make plates and you help me out make plates and, and we'll kind of work not so much individually but as a team. I I enjoyed that a little bit more. And then when it came time to print the editions, we all, I, everybody had their, which one do you, you know, say an artist would do before printing. We'd all take turns. Like, I remember uh, Tony DeLapp there one time, and, and there was two printers and myself. So we each, he just wound up with Tony did three prints. And so we all just, you know, took one. But we all worked together on the whole project, problem solved and stuff like that. Well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to you know, I, I like working that base. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, and I know that there are a lot of students who listen to the podcast, and a lot of younger artists who are really interested in collaborative printmaking and maybe starting their own shop or doing some publishing. Mm-hmm. Do you have advice for someone who's maybe just kind of starting out, approaching artists and working together? Your best practices after working with many artists over the years? Oh God. <laughs> You know, one one thing I know I'm I'm not good at uh-huh. is because is, uh, people I'm not good at, at trying to like people always ask me, well, why didn't you start your own shop? You, you knew all these artists after so many years. You know, why why did you maybe stay at Tamron so long, or why didn't you start your own shop and stuff? And I'm like, because I know I'm terrible at business. I I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know I don't know how to say no to somebody, mm. and so. You got to know your limitation, though, and I think that's really important. You got to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. Mm. And, and you know, if you're good at, if you think you're good at smoothing and, and, and making deals and, and raising money and all that stuff, well, fine, go for it. But if you're not, you better hook up with somebody who is. You know, mm. and not too many people kind of do it on their own. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of work. I know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people I know that have print shops kind of like garage shops, just one person or maybe maybe two people if times are good. Yeah, they might hire one, another printer. But it's hard. It's hard to. To me, it's much easier to make prints than it is to sell them. You know? mm-hmm. That's the hard part. I was like, because you make a print and you're like, you're invested in it. You're like, wow, it's a great print or whatever. And But then it doesn't sell. It's like, why didn't this print sell? Or why did why did this print? Right. Sell, which I'm like, I think it's crap. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that market, me, I can't, I've never been able to figure that out, the market. Selling yeah. stuff, uh, it's not my forte, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I'm definitely coming to understand that a bit myself, interestingly enough. 
I mean, I've worked in commercial galleries and I'm, I'm good with people one-on-one -on -one and, and talking about a work. And I love talking about prints with people and I love educating people about them and having that conversation about what a lithograph is. And we had the landfall show at, at the gallery that I work at a while ago and having that landfall book and being able to open it up and showing people the prints and showing the artists working. I mean, that was such a fun exhibition to be able to do that. But I'm realizing how much of the art world, as you say, is this schmoozing with billionaires. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm like, I don't think I have that in me. Like, I just, I don't know. I, I, and I think it's something that just does have to come to someone naturally. Otherwise, it's just really awkward and strange. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm lucky that my my partner Tim is much more business oriented and so much better at just saying like, why don't you just ask him for some money if you want to do this thing? And I'm like, what? Oh no 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 no! I couldn't do that. <laughs> you know? Right. And it's just I a hate, funny I world. Hate, I hate I hate talking about. I just. When even when sometimes I'll sell a, one of my printer's proofs from time to time for one reason or another, and people inevitably go, well, "What would you like for it?" And I'm like, oh, "I knew you were." I it's it's my phobia, but I just do not like talking about money. Yeah, yeah. It's just I don't know. There's something that goes back to my childhood. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm the same way. Where like. Tim would just be like $30,000. Like he wouldn't like hesitate. <laughs> he just would be able to like right. just do right. it. And yeah, so I think what you're saying about finding partnerships and knowing your limitations and finding people who can kind of complement that is mm -hmm. really good advice. Just kind of got lucky that I, you know, I, I didn't know Tim super well when we got married. <laughs> we got to quote Johnny Cash, we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. But I just kind of lucked out that I happened to, to partner up with someone who could talk money with people because it is a very in-depth part of the art world that I think I've just kind of been almost like consciously ignoring for my first decade in the business. And now my second decade, I'm like, oh, man, this is real. This is like, we have to deal with this, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you kind of going back to your, your time in Tamarind, are there any particular memorable moments or additions over your time there? Pieces that you're particularly proud of or that were particularly challenging that you might want to talk about? Hmm, okay. Yeah, I've worked, worked with a lot of artists over the years and, and one person that always surprises me is is working with with Jim Dine. I mean, he's, you know, he's 86 now. He still he still has tons of energy. He doesn't know what a weekend is. He just he just works and works and and he's got such a love for for printmaking. It's just you know you, you can see it. You know he just he he it's no different for him for you know painting, drawing, photography, sculpture, whatever he's doing, writing poems, printmaking is it's all on the same level. You know it's nothing subservient. To to uh, to printmaking, um, and, and he just he just loves doing it. And you can see it in his marks, you know. It's like I've never witnessed somebody who can draw like him. He just 
he's, he just has the touch. It's just, and it's funny. He, he, uh, one time I was talking to him about people that, you know, when he first started out, he did these happenings with Klaus Olenberg. And, and I, one day I asked him a question about Klaus Olenberg. He goes, God damn Klaus. He said, he's so facile. He said he can just, he could just whip out a drawing of a ice cream cone or a screwdriver or whatever he's thinking about as far as an image. And, he said, he's just, he said, I'm just the complete opposite of him. He said, I just have to work and scratch and, and erase. And, you know, I, I constantly work the, work the paper and, and, you know, it, it just takes me forever to get an image to come up. And uh, he said, we're, we're two complete opposite people, but. You know, but when I look at them side by side, it's like, oh my God! You know, I mean, they they both have such skills, but they come at it from such different angles. You know, and I always remember that story. Well, I got this email. I don't look at my UNM. When you retire, you still get to keep your email. And I don't look at it that often. And I was looking at it just to see if there was anything there that I should pay attention to. About a month ago. And there was a email from this artist that I worked with in 92. Her name is Dottie Addy. And uh, I really enjoyed working with her. We did, I think, a really interesting print. And I would see her from time to time at the print fair in New York. And we, I, she would just go to the print fair. And, and she showed at PPOW. And she actually still shows with them. And uh, I got this email from her out of the blue saying, Happy New Year, kind of thing. And I went, well, Dottie, I haven't heard from her in a long time. So I wrote her back and told her, I'm sorry, I didn't see this email until she wrote it at Christmas time, and now it's March, and, and uh, I told her what's going on in my life. I retired, and da 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 and are you still painting, blah, 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 and um, she wrote back and had a nice, nice response, and I always remember when we worked together, She one time she said, well, are we almost done here, because I don't want to miss The Simpsons. She, she, <laughs> she always watched The Simpsons. I went, Daddy, you really? I mean, 1992 was a great year for The Simpsons. Yeah. (laughs) So that always stuck in my mind. I was like, I never would have thought that Daddy, I love watching The Simpsons. But uh, she did. And uh, it was a print based on, I hope I get this right, Delacroix. Mm -hmm. And it was that that famous. Anyway, what she wanted to do, it was kind of like there was this, I think it was Delacroix. He painted this, this female nude and some Turkish person bought it. And he would put it behind a curtain because it was a nude, but not everybody because of the probably Islamic uh, religion and stuff. Mm-hmm. He kept it under a, a curtain. Well, she wanted to do this print, and she wanted a softness to the to the drawing, and so she said, "Well, could we maybe like?" Can we do the skin tone on a piece of like frosted vellum, backside of a frosted vellum, oh. and then and then we just drape it over this drawing that I did. She was a real good dress person, and so she she drew this this image, and uh, and then we just kind of like she didn't want it to be like flat against it, just kind of like hung down. So we made these two tabs that hung over the top of the print and glued onto the back. And then this this piece of vellum just kind of floated, just the weight of it, the gravity kind of kept it fairly close to the drawing. And so it was like looking through, like you said, like this this translucent veil. And it softened up the drawing. It was just, it was just, a, 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 I was like, wow, this looks great. Wound up working, thank God. Never, yeah. a lot of times things don't work. And uh, I just always treasured that print. And, and I wanted to show it uh I was I was asking if when when Josie came over to uh, 
pick out prints for the show at the mm-hmm. Albuquerque Museum. I showed her that Dottie ad, told her the kind of the story behind it, how I really, really like that print. She said, it's a great print, she said, but I every other subject matter. Uh-huh. I understood that you now, so we didn't, we didn't put it in the in the show but it's one of my it's one of my favorites and then to hear from her like 30 years later because yeah. i never worked with her again like i said i saw her from time to time in new york but it's been a long time since it's been over 20 years since i've actually seen her yeah oh i love that yeah. story and i think also it it speaks to particularly how in printmaking we're able to work on intense and collaborative projects together and then people go off into the world but like that bond really stays there's something really bonding about working together towards a common work of art that mm-hmm. yeah really keeps people together so i i really like that yeah. i actually i'm glad that you you mentioned josie because we don't have a whole lot of time left but i wanted to make sure to get a chance to talk about Printer's Proof, that museum, I'm sorry, that that exhibition in the museum. Yeah. And I got to see it opening day, and it is really spectacular. But I'm hoping you could speak to it a little bit and maybe kind of your inclusion in it and maybe just kind of do a little champion for the exhibition itself. Yeah. It would be great for people to go see it. It's such, I think, a significant exhibition for collaborative printers. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great show. I've seen it. I've, I've been there three times just to go back, just to, to look at things more closely without not a lot of people. But every time I go, I either see somebody I know or or, or Josie's there and she introduces me to some other person. And I see people, I've heard this from other people also, that People are just like reading the labels and like mm. really spending looking at stuff, which is to me, it's it's great. It's fascinating. It's the way it should be. And uh, I just think the the variety of, of work in the show is what, what really makes it. Like um, the second time I went back, it was early in the morning. I got there at like nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. And uh, and there was people there. And, and as, the, as, the, as the hours wore on, more and more people showed up. But one thing I noticed, I, I started looking at Maria Ancona's work, which she had a lot of monotypes in the show. And how she's got a good touch with monotypes. She really, there, there's some of those monotypes that are just, just spectacular. They're really, it's like... It's not. It's not easy to do a good monotype with, with an artist. A lot of times, it, it just has a weird. It's, it's hard to do, and uh, she's good at it. She's got the touch, and uh, I was really impressed with. It. I'm really looking close at some of those monotypes. But every everybody had great work. Everybody. I'm not just saying one print of Robert Arbor's. I remember was where he had two blends. I think it was one sheet of paper, and it was just a black to white black blend. But there was just like two rectangles side by side and there was about maybe a three inch space in between these two rectangles and in the middle of where the blend went black to white black right in the middle where the white was if you looked right in the middle of the sheet where there was no no ink or it was just white paper this line turned where the white was it turned to gray right there in the white paper and then it continued it was the oddest illusion and every time i i i, I go to the show i gotta go back and look at that and go, mm. yeah that's still there and that little little illusion is still there it, it's it's probably the best use of a blend I've seen, I think. It's not, there isn't even anything there, but it just continues on. Yeah. 
and I don't know. There are there are, there's some really great prints. You know, I like. I hadn't seen it framed. I've never framed it. It was James Drake print. It's pretty big. It's two two thirty by forty four sheets of paper mounted on top of each other, and the top part is a drawing, tone and drawing of called Third World Street Girl. Mm. It was a Mexican um, mother with her baby and stuff, and it's just a great drawing that James did. Uh, well, he's such a good drawer. It was when the toner was kind of a fun thing to draw with, plates. or And it was fun to draw with. It pulled some proofs and they looked right. But then, additionally, not easy with toner. Kind of jump all over the place. Mm. The darks would get a little darker and the lights would disappear. And you'd be like, oh, no, what's happening here? <laughs> but so it wasn't easy, the addition. But, but it was nice to see that up on the wall. I haven't looked at that print in probably 20 years. So some of the early work I liked. Steve Britko had some great prints in the show. Everybody has prints in the show. Yeah. It's just a great variety of stuff. It is. And I think one of the things that is so significant about it, or at least for me, was, of course, that it's the exhibition of prints and it's organized by printer. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's so wonderful considering that I'm sure you do this too. When you go to museums often and you see a print on the wall and you're like this is wonderful and you're looking 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 for the credit of the printer or the shop and it's it's not included and the chop is framed <laughs> over and you're just like you're like it's like they just were erased from history and so this is such a, a counterpoint to that to have an exhibition organized around the printers and and here is a body of work in one place from this printer, and then here's a body of work from that printer. And I think in terms of just educating people on the system of collaborative printmaking, and sure, it's just doing a fantastic job. So that's super fun. I'm hoping to get Josie Lopez on the podcast at some point, just to talk about it in general, because I think she'd be wonderful to do it. And it's, I think, one of the best printmaking exhibitions I've ever seen. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, just one more person I'd like to mention. Yeah, of course. Uh, as far as artists, is uh, when I worked at Peregrine Press in, in Dallas, Texas, I worked with this artist. And he has one print in the show. His name's Otis Dozier. And uh, he was in his 80s when I worked with him. And uh, the one print that's in the show, it's a picture of these crows eating watermelon in a watermelon patch, these three crows. Well, there's a... What do you call those little cue? You can just put your camera on it and it, and it clicks. Oh, like a tripod or a? No, no, no. It, it was on the wall. Uh, oh, a QR code. Right, right. Yeah. QR code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if you, there's one on right next to Otis's print there on the wall. So if you cue on, do use your phone. It goes to another print that he did that. It's at the Whitney Museum that he did in 1939 with Lawrence Barrett, who was a printmaker in the Colorado Springs, pretty well-known printmaker. And it's such a nice, because it's, it's the same subject matter. It's crows. The one, the Whitney one, the black and white, it's just black and white. It's just one color. And uh, But it's nice to see that after, from 1939 to 1984, Otis is, goes back to doing his crows again in a different different way, color and stuff. But uh, he was a he was one of my favorite artists to work with. He was so... We had this... He always wore red suspenders. He had a big old head of white hair. And, and he, he kind of like 
portrayed himself as a country person, but mm-hmm. you know, he was a very sophisticated artist. He traveled around the world and stuff, and, and but he had just great stories. One time I was doing a print with him, a jackrabbit, and uh, he wanted to put some color in it. And I said, well, for the for the earth, you know, kind of a desert thing. And I said, some kind of brown? And he goes, no. And like real inside, I went, well, well, why is he saying no so quick to my answer question? I said, Otis, what is it? You don't like brown? He said, I hate brown. <laughs> he said, you really want to know? I said, yeah. He said, well, when I was a little boy, he said, we go to church every Sunday, and my mom bought me this this suit, this brown suit. He said that damn suit never wore out. He said I hate. <laughs> I love it. Oh, <laughs> it still cracks me up now. He said, no, we're not using any browns. I never use brown in anything. So we wound up we wound up using some kind of orangey, rusty color. You know, yeah. Sanguine. Totally, totally. That's really funny. Uh-huh. But yeah, everybody needs to see that show. It's open until mid-May, I think, is when it comes down, May 15th. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely hoping to, like I said, get Josie on before that so we can start spreading the news because it's, it's definitely a show worth traveling for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for talking with me. It's been really fun and thank you for sharing your stories and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you more out in the world yeah. of art in New Mexico and I hope we can stay in touch. Sounds good. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Great. Well, thanks so much, Will. I will let you know when the podcast is coming out, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Have a good afternoon. Bye. You too. Bye. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content, like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with our guests. Also, if you've listened this far... You might be that special kind of print friend who would leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did, and it really does make an impact in the world of podcasting. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Kari Christensen, a Vancouver-based printmaker who is known for her bold, iconic lino cuts of sweeping mountains and contemporary Canadian landscapes. We talk about growing up in a small town, how her background and classical studies influences her artistic practice, and why being gay makes her a better printmaker. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, is written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. <laughs>